0: americans this is the urbane cowboys podcast with josiah neely of r street institute and doug mccullough of lone
1: star policy institute good day
2: howdy y'all welcome to the urbane cowboys podcast i'm Josiah neely with the r street institute
0: and i'm doug mccullough with the lone star policy institute Today, we're joined by Alex Marzano, who is a federal analyst with the Tax Foundation. Uh, Alex, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Alex, I've I've wanted to have you on the program for a while. I've seen some of the things you've written at places like uh, National Review and now more recently at Tax Foundation. And, And actually, the thing that prompted inviting you to be on the show was a... So following you on Twitter and noticing you sort of pushing back a little bit at uh, conservatives who were jumping all over uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg when he was proposing a possibility of a VMT, a vehicle miles traveled tax. And I thought that was an interesting it's sort of an interesting thing because conservatives, obviously, we tend to uh, have a knee jerk reaction anytime there's any any new tax proposed. That uh, we don't like taxes, and so uh, I kind of wanted to give you a, an opportunity to sort of unpack your thoughts a little bit about when he says that, that that the VMT is something that might that's showing promise and is something that might be considered. What might you find attractive about a VMT from from your personal perspective?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one thing to start with is that is the assumption that this is going to finance new spending, and you're going to finance new spending one way or another. Now, maybe we prefer, maybe we think that we don't need as much infrastructure spending as the Democrats are proposing. But let's say that we do. Um, There are better and worse ways to pay for it. And the advantage of a vehicle miles travel tax is that it tends to fall on the people who are using the service in question so if you drive a lot then you'll pay more in taxes because and which makes sense because you are follows the the sort of benefit principle of of efficient taxation where the people who benefit from a service are the ones who who predominantly pay for it um you know thinking about the the cost of of sort of road maintenance if you drive it more you probably contribute more to that although that should indicate that you should have a um Based it on sort of weight per axle, um, which is a better measurement of of the uh, cost of, in terms of maintenance, as well as sort of general congestion on on roads. Um, which is to say, you know, the more people who are who are using a, a roads makes it makes it sort of an externality for for other people trying to trying to use them. Um, and I guess the VMT, the advantage of the VMT over the gas tax, which is a big part of how we fund roads, although would, the gas tax does not cover the entirety of of transport of, of road spending, um, is that over time, the gas tax has become less effective as a revenue source because cars are getting more efficient and more cars are electric. So more drivers are either not paying gas taxes at all or just paying less while the demands of infrastructure spending uh, continue to rise. Um, so that's the sort of abstract argument for a VMT. And I think that there have been a lot of, of conservative or libertarian friendly groups who have been supportive of it um in the past and in the present. Uh now there are there are obviously some some problems with it, which we, we can get into. But yeah, I think that's that's my sort of basic argument about the
0: the the VMT. And it's interesting too, because sort of from the perspective of a lot of conservatives are supporters of the oil industry at least certainly here in texas where josiah and i are and in I, I think there's at least an argument that uh that this approach rather than a gas tax would put a little bit of the tax burden on electric vehicles uh which i guess from the perspective of of those supporting the the oil industry would probably find that you know that maybe they should find that uh uh a, a more welcome approach
1: yeah i think that that is actually sort of the interesting aspect of of what what the the debate between a vmt versus a, a gas tax is that um you know i think a, 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 the gas tax doesn't work as well as a sort of user fee for roads as it used to because again m- more cars are no longer subjected more cars are no longer subjected to it um and so you know theoretically you would think that that liberals would be sort of more favorable to just sticking with the gas tax because, you know, effectively you have an Im- implicit subsidy or an exemption for it from electric cars. It's sort of an ad- additional incentive to adopt green technology uh, or um, uh, and sort of pseudo thought of as a excise tax on, on pollution, sort of like a, a like diet-targeted carbon tax of some kind. Um, but, uh, that does not seem to be, it seems like generally my, my impression was that conservatives seem to prefer the idea of, uh, of, of, of just, just sticking with the tax that we currently have, uh, which might be true, good, a good point just from an administrative perspective that, um, there are a lot of sort of administrative issues with, how to collect a VMT and there are privacy concerns and that if you deal with the privacy concerns, you can't have the efficiency that you want. Um, but, uh, but I think that sort of, sort of interesting breakdowns across uh, non-traditional ideological lines.
2: You know, let me ask about that because, you know, I'm favorably disposed towards a VMT alternative to a gas tax. I think you, you kind of are going to need some alternative to gas tax, uh, both because of EVs and then also the increasing efficiency. But how does it, you know, how do you actually implement that in practice to be able to tell like, cause you know, the, the one, you know, a a big advantage of the gas tax is people have to go to buy the gasoline. And so you just put the tax on the gasoline and that's done. Uh, So like, how would you make people pay based on the miles that they've traveled uh, for the, for the VMT?
1: Yeah, so I think that there are a few approaches to it. Um, one of the options is, which I think people usually jump to and is where mostly the, the privacy concerns come in, is, is using like car GPSs, which understandably can kind of freak people out. Um, there are alternatives to this. There's uh, trying to do it at, um, doing it through paying at the pump um, just based on, Uh, like uh, sort of average amount of of time it takes to like fill up a tank or go between charges Um, or stuff like uh, just using odometers um, and uh, sort of some sort of onboard technology done through third parties or or something. Um, But, you know, then you run into some implementation problems that, Especially if this is done at a, a state level versus a federal level, um, it the implementation gets sort of tricky. I think the economics of it, I think, are pretty good, um, but the the implementation gets kind of fishy.
2: Yeah, I did. Uh, I did wonder, you know, because you could just have people come in every year to check the odometer. So I actually did uh, try to look into like, you know, how. How easy is it to uh, like manually roll back your odometer or something like that to try and uh, cheat? Apparently, it it is a little uh, difficult these days. Um, yeah, you know, I remember uh, like in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, this is a big thing where they have to they're trying to they're trying to get the odometer to go back uh, by putting the car in reverse. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's the question. Is you know, uh, I'm I'm a big fan of uh, low tech solutions. You know, I think uh, oftentimes people get uh, enticed by all these like, oh, or we're going to have these high tech digital apps and things, and which is fine, but sometimes it's just a you know, you can get uh, most of the way there through something pretty pretty simple and uh, old-fashioned and you avoid a lot of the, the headaches I, I don't know how workable just doing odometer checks would be uh, particularly given you know m- maybe it would be one thing if we we're talking about a bill of thousands of dollars or whatever but uh i guess i think like you know the i, I don't know how much the average person pays in gas tax a year but i I think it's like less than a hundred bucks or something. So it's not a huge amount that you would, you'd have to really, really not want to pay that little bit of money in order to go through all that, that work. Yeah. To work. There was
1: an interesting idea. I think uh, Virginia has implemented um, to sort of uh, ameliorate some of the problems of the gas tax as is, that is a sort of weak approximation of the fixes that would be provided by VMT where uh, if you buy an electric car, there is an additional fee that is sort of approximately equal to the amount of gas taxes one would pay. Um, this is, of course, under the assumption, I mean, this is the tricky thing about the gas tax is that some people think of it in their heads as uh, an environmental policy, and some people think of it as a transportation policy. Um, it's not necessarily a binary choice, but... Um, uh, that would be one way to sort of address the problems that a VMT would address within the current system. Um, of course that doesn't work as well on the margin because it's, it's just a flat, it's a, it's a flat fee that doesn't reflect necessarily how much you drive in the electric car. Um, but it's one, one, one possible solution. Yeah. I think, I think under the, the proposal, uh, or, or uh, the tax foundation had a paper from, um, uh, Ulrich um, uh, uh, Ulrich, who is our uh, uh, one of our analysts uh, about called who will pay for the roads uh, last year. And I think under his examples, um, I think the VMT rate would be would have been sort of 1.2 cents about for passenger cars, but 6.5 cents per mile for um, commercial traffic, which is obviously much more heavily sort of trucks. And and stuff like that, as opposed to, like you know, unsurprisingly, uh, a Prius does less damage to a road than a
2: eighteen wheeler. <laughs> so you recently had a piece with the Tax Foundation, uh, co-authored with Erica York, about a Bernie Sanders proposal for a CEO tax. So uh, what what is a CEO tax? and i mean it sounds pretty bad i don't know but uh what is your perspective on the ceo tax
1: so the proposal which i believe is called the tax excessive ceo pay act is basically bases what would increase the corporate income tax faced by ceos according to how large the ratio of the ceo's salary or I guess it's, I think it's not technically the CEO salaries, whoever the highest paid executives salary, whatever the highest paid executive salary is, um, the ratio of that to the salary of the median worker. And I think uh, I want to say it starts at, if the ratio is between, you know, one and 50, there's no increase. And then it goes up by like 0.5% for each sort of successive chunk of 50. So uh, between 50 and 100 would pay a tax rate of 21.5% uh, and then 150 22. And I think it goes up there until like 500 or something where it caps out at, at or 400 when it caps out at, at 26% or 25%. Um, and basically the, the main problem here is that the ratio between median worker pay and CEO pay mostly is based on what industry a company is in and ergo what type of workers they employ. For example, um, you know, if you are an energy company, you, you don't have a ton of workers for the revenue that you put out. Um, uh, because you know, everything is just so heavy capital and heavily capital intensive. And the workers, a lot of the workers you do have are like engineers, um, who are, who are sort of highly, highly productive, um, and tend to have you know a lot of fancy a lot of fancy degrees and stuff, um, and then you know compare that to a fast food company, where your sort of most of the, the most of your work a lot of your workers are, are sort of lower productivity on the whole, um, and uh, as a result, but but the CEO's job is is much more comparing the CEO of of a fast food company the CEO of an energy company is much more apples to apples than comparing the workers of a fast food company and the workers of a um, energy company or a, or like a financial services company who would mostly do fine on this metric because, you know, the salary of a banker and the CEO of a bank is, is a lot smaller just because that sort of reflects the types of jobs they do. So that's the real problem with the tax is that it would mostly end up being a, a corporate tax increase on the type of companies that employ low income workers, largely regardless, Of how well they treat them relative to comparable companies in the same industry. Sure. Um, Yeah. I mean, I guess I think I think the the problem, and so so the the sort of end effect of that is that a chunk of of the corporate income tax falls on workers. So this would in fact be partially a tax increase on the lowest skilled or sort of lowest. Uh, I, I've heard a lot of, of sort of economics discourse about, about not liking the term lower skilled. So I, I guess I could use the sort of lower credentialed um, as a sort of more accurate reflection. Um, uh, but that essentially this would end up being a tax on uh, partially falling on lowest income workers who are either entering the workforce or, or just sort of on the bubble uh, of the workforce generally. Um, so, I think that this would be that there are a lot of better sort of approaches uh, to sort of stol- solving, stimulating wage growth, and uh, other uh, sort of generally pro-growth policies that are inclusive and and help everybody across the income spectrum than this, which I think relies on a, a metric that is is pretty flawed on a firm by firm basis, which is the ratio of CEO pay to worker pay.
0: Yeah, well, let's talk about that for a second, because that's that's sort of a, an, an issue that it, we're starting to see more and more on the right. Uh, you have um, prominent conservatives like Marco Rubio, who's uh, talking about making the Republican Party a workers' party. You're hearing mm-hmm. other organizations make the case that conservatives need to cater to workers and so forth. Um, and uh, knowing a little bit about their approach to economic policy, I have a feeling that uh, your approach would be very different. What if, if from a sort of free market perspective, if we wanted to uh, tilt the scales just a little bit more towards workers, and as you say, sort of uh, make make uh, the economy a little bit more inclusive so that workers can earn more? What would be some, you know, free market or market oriented tax policies or economic policies that that we could that we could actually pursue that would actually be beneficial to workers rather than sort of just talking about how we need to connect with workers what are, what are some of the the policy tools that are available
1: yeah so I guess I think I'll, I'll, I'll focus on on tax as a sort of baseline and then um, essentially you know people talk about and I, I think with with Biden's infrastructure bill coming out I think there are a bunch of tax credits for semiconductor manufacturing and, and a bunch of other stuff. Um, and I think similar ideas have been put forward by um, the American Compass crowd. Um, and I think the place to start is that, you know, okay, maybe maybe you do want subsidies for certain things, um, but at a, at a baseline, the tax code shouldn't penalize whatever thing that you want. And then maybe you want to add some subsidies on top of that. That's up to you but we should start from sort of neutral tax treatment. And under the current system, um, a lot of investments uh, have to be depreciated uh, under taxes over sort of many years, number depending on type of asset. Um, Structures, for example, have to be spread. uh, Commercial structures have to be spread over 39 years and residential structures over 27 and a half, uh, for example. And the problem, with that is that essentially you know if you have to deduct a million dollar and 10 million dollars in investment in like a a housing project or something um then you have to divide that those deductions subtracting those costs from your revenue to get profit you have to spread those out over 27 and a half years Um, and the result of this is that you know companies value deductions in the future a lot less than they do deductions now, and this is the sort of basic time value of money concept, in addition to inflation, that inflation will mean that a, a deduction of a $1 million 27 years from now is, is going to be worth less than deducting it now. Um, and also sort of spreading these deductions out doesn't really reflect the real profits of the company in the current year in terms of what they can pay. So you know, if you are particularly, if you make a big investment, but you have to spread the cost out over a long time, you know, in that year, you don't have any cash flow. Like if, if you you make a million dollars and you have a million dollar investment that's spread over 10 years, then you have no revenue. <laughs> but if you have to spread it out over 10 years, then it shows up that you have $900,000 in revenue or in, in profits. Uh, uh, and so actually deducting them immediately that also sort of more reflects the like liquidity situation I guess of 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 companies as well. Uh, so essentially what we should be doing to increase sort of productivity, and I think that is also an important debate that that I that how much um, productivity growth is connected to wage growth. Um, that some metrics say that, that that there's been sort of a disconnect since nineteen seventy three. Um, and other metrics and other studies say there, there hasn't, um, I tend to be of the view that, that they're still connected there. It might might not be sort of a perfect connection that like a a 1% increase in productivity leads to like a 0.7% increase in wage growth. But even that is, is still good. Um, that like in order to increase productivity, we need sort of big capital investment. Uh, and so sort of. Expensing, which is to say deducting the sort of full cost of investment in the year it's made is the kind of policy that would increase investment uh, and, and, and productivity. And it particularly would help uh, manufacturing because manufacturing is very capital intensive mm-hmm. industry. Um, a large set of their costs are these sort of big uh, capital projects that they have to now spread out and can't essentially can't deduct the full real value of, as opposed to say, um, say, as we were going to an earlier example, a fast food company, where most of their costs are, are labor, and they can deduct those immediately. So it's it's less of a problem for them, but it matters a lot for something like, uh, you know, a US Steel or um, uh, try to think of other, you know, Intel, uh, you know, semiconductor manufacturer. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's the sort of starting uh, shtick of, of expensing.
0: Now, now, I'm with you on the capital expensing, um, but I also, you know, uh, it, I, it, I don't want to put too much weight on its shoulders, so to speak. What else could possibly be done for workers? And I'll throw one out there just to see what your thoughts are. Uh, I, and I don't hear anybody seriously proposing this, although I think it'd be fantastic Is Is there some other way we could pay for social security other than payroll taxes i mean why why have why in this day and age when we're trying to promote employment would we have a a, an additional surtax on employment is there is there some other way that we can mitigate mitigate the cost of employment um through some type of tax policy or even replacing the payroll taxes with some other type of tax
1: i think when, when, as far as as far as the payroll tax goes, I think that there is a sort of as far as the the incidence goes, uh, there's sort of a I guess the distinction between um, economic incidence and and legal incidence of who pays the tax and and what is the sort of economic unit the tax falls on, and the payroll tax is close to a, a consumption tax or value added tax at economic incidence. Um, even though, you know, switching from, like, I, I used to be a big advocate of this idea that, that of, of switching from the payroll tax to a, a broad-based consumption tax or a value-added tax, um, because, you know, you're shifting from taxing, you know, labor to consumption. But at the end of the day, the sort of uh, payroll taxes basically end up mostly being ta- or mostly being consumption taxes. Um, you know, it would be, there are a few reasons where it'd be sort of marginally preferable to do a, uh, a value added tax instead of a, a payroll tax. But I think as far as the sort of political lift of, uh, gutting, like, like re- repealing one huge sort of, uh, core revenue raiser in the U S tax code and replacing it with an entirely different one for these sort of marginal, a sort of marginal gain, um, in economic efficiency, doesn't seem uh, worth it to me. Um, I would say, as far as I mean, I guess I, d- I don't want to verge too far from taxes. Um, I think better sort of tax treatment of of like training programs and stuff like that. You know, you don't want to just improve tax treatment of of physical capital. You want sort of human capital investment as well. Um, R and I think. I mean, new technology and innovation is the the core of um, long-term growth and prosperity, I think. And uh, at the end of the year, you know, companies will have to start um, spreading the cost of R&D over five years instead of immediately deducting them, which is what basically what the companies have always done in the U.S. and do in basically every part of the world um, or every sort of OECD country, at least as far as I know, I don't know much about Tanzania's tax system. But uh you know, making sure that companies can continue to expense R&D would be, would be useful as well. Um, but then, you know, there, there are other policy options that are, are sort of outside of the realm of tax um, that uh, as far as sort of in, in the industrial, the industrial policy, uh, uh, I don't know what to call it, umbrella, I guess. Um, but, you know, that, that's, that's, there, there's some extent that I, I remember, I want to say it was Caleb Watney uh, from, from the Progressive Policy Institute had some, some chart explaining about how like everything was industrial policy, like could be construed as industrial policy. Um, so, you know, that's a big can of worms, big can of worms. <laughs>
0: Right. Well, that's, that's, that's actually, that's another issue that's coming up more and more. You've mentioned uh, American compass and so forth, and we've had Oren Cass on the show. Uh, but this whole idea, and again, I've mentioned Rubio, the idea that we need a, we need an industrial policy. Um, you know, my background, I, you know, my day job is I'm a, I'm a lawyer and I actually have a master's of law in tax. So I've given a little bit of thought to tax and taxes on my mind quite a bit. Um, uh, you know, both in terms of policy as well as sort of uh, practicing tax law, and it seems to me that there's a, an opportunity for a conservative or market approach that really uh, prioritizes international competitiveness um, rather than what I view as sort of centralized planning of industrial policy. And I and guess, and maybe in some sense, I'm I'm sort of agreeing with with Caleb's idea that even approaching the tax code as international competitiveness is a form of industrial policy in the sense of it's maybe it's not industrial policy as much as it's an alternative to industrial policy uh talk a little bit if you don't mind about about international competitiveness uh and particularly because i know that uh, and you know president biden's proposing uh You know, reinstating the prior uh, corporate tax rates. Talk a little bit about how important tax competitiveness is from a, you know, national economic perspective. And, you know, again, sort of talk about the, the tools that are available to us to make sure that we are competing globally, economically with rivals like China and others.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the one of the important things to to remember that often I think gets lost in a mix when people get um, uh, start doing international comparisons about uh, the corporate tax is that uh, states often also level their own corporate income tax, and so uh, and I think generally uh, international. Um, the sort of they're, they're, there's no, a lot, for a lot of international examples there aren't equivalent of, of additional sort of provincial or state level um, corporate taxes in addition. So uh, currently, I think the U.S. is right around average as far as the OECD goes um, when you consider the uh, uh, additional burden of, of of sort of generalized uh, average averaged um, state uh, corporate profits taxes. Um, and so, you know, Biden's idea, and that's with a federal rate of, of 21%. Uh, and I think the average rate is, is somewhere with state considered, I think it's somewhere around 26. Um, but, uh, but then, of course, if that's average, then adding another seven points to that would, would put the US um, uh, pretty, pretty high up. Uh, and I think a lot of companies, a lot of countries have also reduced their corporate tax in response to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Mm-hmm um, passing. So it would put us in a, in a, in that way into a more disadvantaged position as if the, because in Obama tax reform, Obama wanted to put, um, in one of his proposals included reducing the rate to 28. Um, so it would be like, we would be less more of at a, at a disadvantage than we would have if, if that was the policy in 2014 or whenever. Um, yeah so i think i think as far as and i think another point about sort of manufacturing which is uh seems to be is a focal point for both republicans and democrats uh now is that um when you look at comparing, th- i think i think the conservative approach at this point should prioritize uh expensing over uh corporate rate increases if the concern is is it focused on, on manufacturing because, um, I guess, in, in sort of historical context, which, which is interesting, in the Tax Reform Act of 1986, um, there was sort of a debate about whether to preserve a lot of the accelerated depreciation provisions uh, from earlier tax reforms, they, the first Reagan tax cuts, um, or to, whether to lower the, the corporate tax rate. And the there's a book called, uh, I think it's called The Battle at Gucci Gulch. I read Segments of it, I haven't read read the whole thing, but basically, what happened was that the the sort of heavy industry people wanted um, uh, accelerated depreciation to stick around, and the retail a lot of the sort of retailers and stuff like that preferred the lower corporate rate, and um, the retailers won. The de- depreciation schedules were lengthened, um, rate went corporate rate went down, but at the end of the day. I, this is not a great trade because the thing about expensing, uh, sort of full deductions for asset for, for capital investment, is that this is just a tax cut on future investment. As far as comparing the sort of revenue cost, this is just about reducing the burden of 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 buying a new factory of 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 building that new sort of gizmo that um, turns out widgets. Uh, as opposed to a corporate rate cut where yes, for the new gizmo uh, gizmo builder, you are going to uh, face a lower tax on the profits that you will make from that, which, which increased the incentive to invest. But at the same time, if you had an old factory that you've already made and is just sitting there and, and making money, then you also face lower tax on that. And, um, that doesn't really change your behavior. That's a windfall. Um, so on the whole, it is more efficient to do expensing over um, corporate, corporate rate increase or expensing over a corporate rate cut, especially at this point. Um, I think that that would be an interesting place if at least maybe, you know, one Republican or or a, or a moderate Democrat was in the room uh, for this, this infrastructure thing. If, would be it would be interesting to see if there was a a compromise there for for raising the corporate rate with um some sort of expensing provisions whether it's the temporary ones enacted in the tax cuts and jobs act uh or new ones which would be cool um as a compromise um that would be interesting but
0: uh know, i'm not super optimistic but who knows <laughs> So one of the things I've been seeing lately across the board in uh, in policy circles, and and I, I think that it's worse now than it has been in sort of in the times of pandemic, people sit around and come up with uh, crazy ideas. Maybe 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 it's always been there. Maybe I'm just noticing it more. Uh, but what are what are some of your uh, you know if you had a sort of a hall of shame? of tax proposals, I'm hearing, uh, all sorts of things that just, this makes me want to shake my head. And it's almost like, I want to, I want to go write an angry op-ed about some of these. And it's like, it's, I don't think some of these are even worth the time of day. Uh, like for one of them was the, uh, this concept of, we ought to, we ought to have a surtax on anyone who works from home because they have a privilege over people that can't work, you know, can't work from home uh but you know talk about it you know sort of what's, what are some of the worst ideas you've heard in the last year or so uh i'll, I'll let you just sort of take it away oh boy there've got to be so
1: many I, I the first one i was thinking of was the the work from home uh, uh tax which as i recall my my colleague uh, jared jared Walzak he wrote an article about it and i think the first sentence was like was something about like clearly uh was it Credit Suisse or Deutsche Bank who heard that the white paper was like, clearly these guys are desperate for some web traffic or something. Um, but, uh, it, it makes very little sense. I, that, that, that I've, I've also heard similar ideas propagated by sort of different sets of, of like, uh, there was one guy in the New York Times talking about it because he was mad about people who of who like wealthy people who like left New York City they should pay some kind of, you know, special for tax for for abandoning the city in its time of need or something. And uh, you know, I, I've also heard sort of the pajama class tax from sort of right populace. and it, it's like if the concern is that the distribution of 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 the cost of of COVID and like COVID restrictions and whatever is is disproportionately burdened sort of lower income people, uh, then you just we have a progressive income tax like you just do it through there um if if that is a big policy concern um and i, I just think the idea of and obviously the the marginal incentives there are, are are crazy you shouldn't want to incentivize people to go back into the office, which would be the main result of that at least not yet uh there's another one what was it oh yeah and and I'm not not a huge fan of the uh uh who, the british government with the legendary slogan of, of of eat out to help out uh the sort of ta- i'm not sure actually i'm pretty sure it was it was it's a tax-based subsidy as opposed to just sort of a general spending thing which encouraged people to, to go out to eat to support restaurants during during the pandemic which again it doesn't i guess you know it's why would that be the thing you would incentivize you know maybe maybe uh, t- take out to help out or something you know um, so th- that that is another weird one that has has been big in the context of a pandemic um, yeah I think those those are the two weird ones it's, it's like taxing working from home and subsidizing going out to eat were the two sort of strangest policy responses that I, I think I saw have seen proposed.
0: So it's to kind of wrap things up, I have a general question for you. Sort of, uh, you know, you are uh, a young budding scholar. What's what's your ultimate goal? Just to uh, to run the boards and all the neoliberal shill brackets is that is that the ultimate plan?
1: You know, someday I'd like to make it past the second round, but um, you know, I, I honestly, I honestly, don't really know what my my like long term my long term plans are. Still in in sort of flux. Um, but, you know, I think I would like to, um, I guess there's something, there's something which I guess is true in taxes that is, is always, is always true for, for all things is that you, you never, there's no such thing as the, the sort of final victory that like, uh, there will never, there, 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 the, the, there will, will not, we will not reach the like ideal, uh, sort of, um, the ideal sort of growth maximizing, tax system we won't like achieve that someday and then have it just be like okay now we've 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 done time to like time to like pack it in we've we've fixed everything um because again these sort of debates uh are are sort of constant uh not only what should we be taxing but how much should we tax be taxing them etc cetera, etc cetera. so i think this taxes will always be uh well you know there's a better quote nothing nothing is certain except except death death and taxes so i think i'm going to be stuck uh, uh, doing doing tax stuff in some capacity or
0: the other for a long time (laughs) well great well thank you so much for joining us and uh, maybe next time we'll have you come back and uh, explain uh, what's wrong with the wealth tax Uh, that'd be uh, that'd be a fun episode thanks so much for having me thanks a lot